Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. The final from Progressive Field in Cleveland. It's the Cleveland Guardians 3, the Tampa Bay Rays 2. I'm Davey Barris, a lifelong Cleveland baseball fan, and I want to talk about the actual game on the field, the thing I enjoy watching baseball being played. What a solid win for your Cleveland Guardians tonight. I know it doesn't move them up in the standings, but a win is a win. And, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to talk about it. I'm not even going to talk about Minnesota and Texas, we're, and we're not going to bring it up on this show. We're just Guardians have a job to do, and that's focus on themselves and focus on their baseball. And that's all we can do as fans is focus on our Cleveland Guardians. So uh, we won the game. We beat the Tampa Bay Rays. Feels good to do it at home. Uh, there, I, I feel like there is something, you know, there's, there's, there's a bit of a rivalry between Cleveland and Tampa Bay. You know, we did, I forgot, totally forgot about this. They brought it up during the game. We didn't knock them out of the playoffs last year. And I feel like as long as Yandy Diaz is still a star on that team, there'll always be a little something between us, between these two teams. So, uh, let's get into this. Let's get into the top storylines of the game. If you're expecting me to talk about the new players and the waiver wire acquisitions from the Los Angeles Angels, which didn't factor into this game, we didn't see either of the relief pitchers in this game. He went with uh, he went with his guys. Francona went with his guys. I'm sure the new guys will get mixed in at some point this weekend. You will see them at some point this weekend. Um, if you're expecting me to talk about that, I did. In a previous episode, and I did a bonus episode yesterday, and I, I went super in-depth. I talked about the different moves the front office have made over the last month and what direction, what they signal, what they mean. Um, so, I, you know, I actually think for, for some rambling uh, in the middle of the night after breaking news comes down, I actually think it's a pretty good episode. So go back, check out yesterday's episode if you haven't listened to it yet because that's where you'll get my full thoughts on everything the Guardians did to not only improve their team, but block the Minnesota Twins from improving their team at the same time. So let's get into the baseball. Let's get into Cal Quantrill and this pitching staff battling Tyler Glass now. Uh, the, uh, you know, I guess it's not too big of a stretch to say the ace for the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, and Quantrill holds his own. I mean, it's a it's a weird night. On a night when you thought, I mean, when when a Rosarena puts one off the left field wall and they score their first run, like you th- you thought this was going to be a bad night, didn't you? Didn't you? A little bit of you went, oh no, oh oh boy, here we go. Here's the Cal Quancho we saw at the beginning of the season, and <laughs> he locks it down. He gives up runs in the first two innings. By the way, both runners were put on base via the walk and then come in to score on doubles to left field. And then shuts them down after that. Six innings pitched, only gives up two hits, two earned runs, three walks. So walks do hurt him a little bit here. Two strikeouts, that's not uncommon for Cal Quantrill. On 86 pitches, he's only hard hit six times. That's actually pretty good. That's I give up two hits. In six innings pitched, who would have thought that was the guy that was going to come back from the minor leagues? Now, now, why why would he was he able to manage two hits? We will get into that in a little bit here. Uh, but on the other side of things, Glass now goes an extra inning. He goes seven innings. He actually gives up seven hits in this game. Three earned runs, no walks from him. They have to do it via the hit. 
He does have six strikeouts. His curveball was nasty. On 97 pitches, he was only hard hit four times. But it's enough. It's enough to get the job done. And in that seventh inning, uh, let's see here. Jimenez is singles at 64.8 miles per hour. Uh, Brennan's line out to center field, which after a stolen base moves Jimenez up to third. Um, was at 89.7. Gabriel Arias on an 0-2 count, singling in the left field, was only at 90.2. It was until Bo Naylor's double to drive Arias in at 106.5 that someone finally cracks one and has a hard-hit ball off him. So, yeah, uh, that's kind of how uh, Glasnow's night went. You know, that, that 64.8 mile-per-hour Bloop single from Andres Jimenez is the perfect example of it. The 0-2 count single from Gabriel Arias is the perfect perfect example of it. Uh, you know, Glass now had some bad luck, wasn't finishing at bats, uh, despite the six strikeouts. Uh, you know, he started to leave things up there late in the game. Uh, so yeah, so Glass now uh, suffers defeat at the hands of the Guardians' young rookie pitchers. Sorry, young rookie hitters. And it's so nice to see. It's so nice to see Gabriel Arias and Bo Naylor continuing to come up big. It wasn't just a fluke in Minnesota or Toronto. Like, these guys have kind of been on a roll. Kind of been on a roll uh, for, you know, the last week or two. And, man, at the perfect time, right? At the perfect time. They're starting to hit their stride as major league players, as major league hitters. So, uh, all right, let's continue to break into some more detail here. Um, We'll start, well, let's talk this rally. While we're talking these hitters, let's talk this rally uh, because it was a good job of uh, doing the right thing with some pitches. And I saw it, I saw it a lot tonight. I saw it a lot tonight from the Cleveland Guardians. Um, Jimenez fights off an 0-1 slider down the middle. Um, frankly, I don't know if his plan was to go to left field. I don't know if he read slider super late out of Glasnow's hand. But it's a good job of, you know, staying on the ball. And even though it's a late swing, uh, you know, keeping those hips closed and just flaring it out to left field. It's a good, I'm surprised to see him take a protection swing on an 0-1 count, because we're used to Andres Jimenez really letting it fly. Really letting it fly. But uh, that's what he does here. He fights this one off and bloops it into left field for a single. Uh, Brennan, you know, I noticed something about Brennan. Um, His WRC Plus is pretty down the second half of the season. And uh, frankly, it's because he just doesn't walk. He just swings. He doesn't have a high strikeout rate or anything like that. The batting average is fair. It's just there's no walk rate. He just is up there absolutely swinging. And uh, swings at a couple of sliders in this at-bat. Glass now is attacking him all with sliders. A good job of going down and digging out a slider from down at his knees and uh, getting it deep enough out to center field to move Andres Jimenez up to third. And then, like I said, Gabriel Arias... He's trying to stay inside to Arias. Um, he uh, throws him a slider. Uh, man, he's really going slider in this inning. And But they're up. Everything is elevated. Uh, so he throws him a slider that he fouls off on the first pitch. Probably wants that one back. Uh, that one was kind of down the middle. 
uh, swings through a slider at the top of the strike zone, and then they try to go curveball. And like I said, the curveball has a ridiculous whiff rate. Glasnow's curveball, he saves it for when he needs it. He threw it 21 times, but it had a 42% whiff rate on the day. Uh, overall, let's see, what is Glasnow's overall whiff rate on that curveball? I know it's something pretty darn impressive as I stall for baseball savant to load. And the uh, whiff rate on the curveball this season has been 53.8%. 53.8% whiff rate on his curveball. That is insanity. Um, but he hangs one here to Gabriel Arias. He hangs one here. It's inside. And Gabriel Arias is able to drive it in the left field. Uh, for a single and bring Andres Jimenez in to score. So a good job of Gabriel Arias not giving up on the at-bat, uh, not giving up on the curveball. You know, it's high. It's something elevated. That should be one you go after. You know, it's those ones that, you know, bail out below the knees that we got to get them to lay off a little bit. But this one, you know, if, if Glass now does get on top of this curveball and actually gets it down, I wonder... I wonder if he strikes out. I wonder if he goes after it and strikes out swinging. But he doesn't. Glass now screws up, and Arias makes him pay for the mistake. And then Bo Naylor really makes him pay. Misses with a fastball up and away, and then tries to throw a slider. And what do the Naylor boys do on inside pitches? This is a slider. That's basically middle-middle. They drive him. They hammer him. 106.5 miles per hour into that gap. And Arias was on his horse. Scores from first base. Uh, he was flying around the bases, uh, giving. I mean, honestly, ever since that double that he, you know, he kind of didn't run out in Minnesota, he's been on his horse. He has been running and hustling and playing the game really hard. So nice to see Arias scoring from first here on this Bo Naylor double. So a beautiful rally by these young guys, uh, doing exactly what they need to do with the pitches they were getting from Glass now. And Glass now maybe just, you know, up a little bit, up in the middle of the plate a little bit more than maybe earlier in the game uh, here in this seventh inning. Uh, I can't break down the pitch location by inning, uh, but you don't want to sit here and watch me go through every inning. But I can tell you he got one pitch below the knees in the seventh inning, and it was a fastball to Quan. One pitch the entire inning that he gets down below the knees. The Will Brennan... um, Sack fly, well, not sack fly, but fly out to center field uh, was at the knees. Everything else is at the belt or above. So, yeah, so Glass now was a little bit high, as opposed to the first inning where there's nothing above the belt. Everything is down. He's got six pitches below the knees in that first inning. So, maybe losing his command a little bit. He's up in the strike zone, and they make him pay. So, honestly, it's a good job by the Guardians' offense of just waiting him out, waiting Glassnow out until he gets tired, until it gets deep in the game, and he starts making mistakes. So, I like it. I like seeing the rally from the young guys. All right, let's talk pitching, because I know when you saw Cal Quantrill penciled in for this game, you thought, this could get ugly. This might not be the game we win this series. Quantrill pitched fairly well. It's, it's nothing spectacular. His player breakdown page is not impressive. Uh, He's got a whiff rate of 15%. I will say that the two-seam sinker was surprisingly effective. 
He got four whiffs. He got nine called strikes on it. It's good for a 41% CSW on that pitch and an average exit velocity of 85.3. And uh, they only put four in play. So pretty impressive from Cal Quantrill, at least uh, as far as that goes. Um, the sinker is the pitch he throws the most on the entire season. I wonder what the, the exit velocity on the year is 89 miles per hour. So uh, they're down at 85.3. So four miles per hour below his season average on that pitch. And it never has a high whiff rate, only 15.4% whiff rate. So, again, it's not a pitch he gets a lot of swing and miss on. I, I can't even say that they they don't hit it because they do. It's got a batting average of 292 with an expected batting average of 313. So they have been hitting that sinker most of the season. Now, what's most encouraging for me is because we, we've talked. If you remember back in the beginning of the season, it was almost obnoxious how much he was throwing his sinker and his cutter. In fact, on the season, he only throws his change up 10.8% of the time. However, in this game, it's the number two pitch on the day. He threw it 28% of the time. So something through those rehabs, through, uh, you know, through the injury, through the rehabs, through the rehab starts, or maybe it's just the scouting report against, obviously, we're going to have to see more of a trend here, but it might just been the scouting report against the Tampa Bay Rays. They decided to use the curveball. They used it more than the cutter on the night. It was a second most thrown pitch. Now, again, didn't have a high whiff rate. He only got one whiff on it and one call to strike, so not spectacular, but maybe it helped the sinker. Maybe it helped the cutter a little bit. Uh, he even mixed in some curveballs too, and some forcing fastballs. So it's nice to see Cal Quantrill mixing in some off-speed pitches. He has to use some of these off-speed pitches to keep these hitters honest at the plate. So uh, I like it. I like it from Cal Quantrill. I like that he's at least willing to try because the the sinker cutter combo at the beginning of the season was not working. It just wasn't. Um, I, I get why he's a little hesitant to use the changeup because they've got a 385 true batting average off his changeup this season with a 364 expected batting average. So they're, they're doing a little bit better than expected, but uh, he only puts hitters away 8.3% of the time with that changeup. But, but if he could at least use it to keep the other pitches honest, uh, keep the hitters honest on his other pitches, it could it could work out for him. I, I at least like to see that he's trying it, um, mixing in curveballs. Uh, on the year, he averages nine point two percent of the time throwing that curveball. What was he on this day? Uh, on this day, it was uh, let's see here, thirteen percent of the time. So slightly more than what he's been averaging on the season. So all right, that's what's going on with Cal Quantrill. The other guy that really impressed me. And it, Quantrill did, and definitely has, let's just say, earned another start. Like, I do want to see him go back out there. I want to see if these trends continue of him mixing in that changeup, using the changeup more effectively. I don't need Quantrill to be a strikeout guy, but if you're going to be a pitch-to-contact guy, you need to prove to me that you could do it without getting blown up in these games. Uh, so, yeah, I'm wondering what his uh, ground ball to fly ball ratio was in this one. I gave him a lot of flyouts, four ground outs to six flyouts. Um, all right, the other guy that really impressed me in this was Trevor Steffen, 
who does get into a little bit of a jam in the eighth inning, but has a very, very strong outing. Um, they uh, they uh, starts with a strikeout. Starts by striking out Yandy Diaz. He's facing the top of the order here. Brandon Lau does get a single off him. Uh, he walks a Rosarena. It's a kind of a bad at bat. Was he pitching around a Rosarena or uh, or what here? But he walks him on like I think it was five pitches, and that brings up Josh Lau, and uh, another big strikeout here in this inning before it gets Isak Paredes to fly out. So let's take a look at the two strikeout at bats. What was Stefan doing to get Yandy Diaz? Uh, come on now, go ahead and update for me here. StatCast, and he was throwing the splitter. Establishes a called strike with a fastball uh, on the outer half of the plate, and then he's attacking the outer half of the plate the whole time against Yandy Diaz. Throws a splitter on the plate that he swings through, lays off one below the knees, but can't lay off a second one. Doubles down on it and gets Yandy Diaz to go down and chase that splitter. You're going to see how effective that splitter was. Then against Josh Lau, uh, again, staying away from the lefty this time, so pitching to the glove side of the plate. Uh, A fastball for a called strike on the outside edge. Another fastball uh, that he fouls off on the outside edge, both elevated fastballs, and then goes down and away with a splitter. He chases and fouls that one off before finally chasing one, I mean, basically at his shoe tops uh, and swings through a splitter for strike three. So he Definitely had them chasing outside the zone tonight. Going to his player breakdown plate, he threw the splitter 10 times. 53% of his pitches were that splitter, and it worked. It had an 83% whiff rate. Come on. On six swings, five whiffs. And outside the zone swinging, too, 50% of the time. So really going out there. They couldn't touch it in the zone or out of the zone. Um, so uh, they did manage to foul one off by chasing out of the zone. That was Brandon Lau there, right? So, yeah, a splitter very effective for him on the day. And I, you know what? Something has changed in Trevor Steffen. Something has changed. That splitter for the season, he's thrown at 25% of the time, which is kind of in line with uh, last season. Uh, the splitter was kind of new to him in 2021. Didn't use it that often, only 8.1% of the time. Last year, it jumps to 27.7. This year, it's at 25.1. But, I mean, the batting average against it is 148 with an expected batting average of 135. So they're doing slightly better than expected at 148. Uh, it's got a whiff rate of 48.8%. Whiff rate, come on. That's fantastic. It's almost as good as Glasnow's curveball, uh, which is one of the most celebrated pitches uh, in baseball. But uh, looking at the 2023 season and looking by month and looking at pitch usage, uh, in July, he was throwing the splitter a little bit less than the changeup, a 20.1% of the time. And then there's a huge jump where the fastball usage comes down about nine points. The changeup usage comes down about five points. And the and the splitter percentage jumps from 20.1% of the time to 34.4. So something changed in July to August where I don't know if he decided. I don't know if it's Carl Willis or the other pitching staff's influence. I don't know where it comes from. 
But I can tell you that he has made an effort to use that split finger in the month of August, and it has been effective for him. And he uses it in this game, and it's pretty darn effective for him. Gets him some major strikeouts and uh, a solid eighth inning here, despite letting two guys on. So very impressed by that, by Trevor Steffen, and I'm impressed. I'm impressed by the adjustments, the adjustments the Cleveland pitching staff seem to be making. And then Classe just dominates the ninth inning, gets two ground outs. Uh, it looked like Jose Ramirez was teasing him on his uh, technique and getting off the mound to field the final ground ball and throw the final runner out of first base. Uh, it looked like Jose Ramirez was having some fun with him in the high five line, waiting for those outfielders to make it in. So, uh, yeah, Cleveland's pitching goes out and beats the Rays pitching. That's what it kind of felt like on this game. Uh, Both offenses gave you a little bit, but it was definitely Cleveland's pitching that beat the Rays pitching. Although I will say uh, Jalen Beeks, who came in to face the top of our lineup after giving up a leadoff single to Jose Ramirez in the uh, top of the eighth, I'm kind of shot. He kind of shuts down uh, Cole Calhoun and Ramon Laureano. Yeah, we just got done talking about what an impact Cole Calhoun and Ramon Laureano have had in the middle of the lineup and how I'm not going to be surprised anymore when I see them penciled in there. And then they're the only guys that don't have a hit tonight. Uh, you know, the rookies all out hit them. Uh, and the young guys all out hit them. So uh, on a night when Cal- Calhoun and Laureano are quiet, it's nice to see the young guys step up and get things done offensively. There is one more thing to note about this game. Uh, Francona actually put a defensive replacement in late in the game. He put David Fry in to play first base and took Cole Calhoun out of the game. Shocked. Shocked that he I, he actually did it. He actually did. It's the right move. Fry is a much better defender at first base than Calhoun is. So it's nice to see him make the actual right defensive play there late in the game, and get his best defender in in a 3-2 game, right, in a one-run game. So good job by Terry Francona there. I I think that's pretty much my breakdown of the game. I mean, it it wasn't nice to see Quantrill get hammered early. There was some great defense at different times in this game that definitely picked up the pitching staff. Uh, Shout-out to Miles Straw's catch in center field, his diving catch in center field. Quan almost had one. Almost had one on uh, Pinto's RBI double in the bottom of the second. Or, I'm sorry, in the top of the second. Um, instead, it ends up at glancing off his glove and actually costing them a run. But Quan does make up for it later in the game where he threw someone out at second base trying to stretch things to a double. It was a relay throw to Jose Ramirez, and they nab a runner at second base trying. Was it Pinto as well? Um, he did have two hits on the game. I think it might have been him. Uh, trying to leg one out late in the game, and they combine on good throws to get them. So some really good defense there. Uh, I thought it was impressive that they were running a lot. It seemed like uh, Quan and Ramirez both like had the green light to just go. Uh, it was Jimenez who stole a base. And, and also, every day, they pointed this out on the broadcast, uh, the, the Apple TV broadcast. Oh, boy. Uh, they pointed out that like every time the Guardians hitters go to steal a base, somebody was fouling a ball off. And it, it has to be some kind of philosophy with the team where it's like the hitters just focus on hitting. 
and the runners just do what they need to do to get to second base. And those things don't seem to line up very well. They tend to do waste some great, amazing jumps and foul off some pitches. Um, when you'd really like to let them just let the steal happen sometimes. Uh, but they do. They, I mean, they steal two bases off them tonight. And, I mean, Jimenez, this proves to be huge. Uh, because that steal of second base allows them to then move up to third on the fly ball to center field and then come in and score. So huge job when we needed to tie the game there in the seventh inning. So a good job base running leading to some uh, big things there offensively. So lots to like in this game. A lot to like in this win over the Rays. It is interesting that we won the game with scoring less than four runs. Remember, we looked this up the other day. I remember when we looked it up at the time, they were 48-18 and 18 when they had scored four or more. That's a 72.7% winning rate when they score four or more runs. At three runs or less, they were 15-52. and 52. That's a 22.4% winning percentage. That's not good. And they managed to pull it off. They managed to add another one. Their 16th win of the season when scoring three runs or less. So, yeah, I feel like they were beating the odds all night. I was talking about that Apple TV broadcast, and I feel like every time they put a a, uh, a percentage up on the screen, it was wrong. Andres Jimenez's chance of getting a hit, you know, whatever it was, 12%, and then he bloops one in left field. It just goes to show that on the micro level, on the micro level, yes, over the course of, a, of the season, you can use statistics to predict how a hitter is going to be. But in the micro level, in the single at-bat, on a single pitch, anything can happen. Literally anything can happen. You don't know if that pitcher is, for the first time all game, is going to leave a curveball up in the zone and Arias is going to be able to hit a single on an 0-2 count. Like, I'm sure the probability of him getting an RBI in that situation on the 0-2 count was very low. But in the micro, in the in the very, very small sample size of one single pitch and one single at bat anything can happen and that's why this game is great not because you put up on the screen what the the on base probability is based on a situation based on whatever you think you're calculating this game's too random it's absolutely too random who'd have thought we beat the twins on a you know we tie the game up on a wild pitch behind the batter's legs right like, this game's just too unpredictable. So, uh, let's go over to the inbox. Let's give the emailers a chance to sound off, uh, especially because nobody got emails in about the waiver signings yet. Um, so, let's hear from Jeff in Palo Alto, who you know is going to give me a challenging email here. He says, quite an eventful off day, which I'm sure you covered in depth earlier. He had sent this in, like, really late at night after I'd already recorded the waiver wire bonus episode. My opinion, nice job of securing some reinforcements to lighten the load on the young pitchers and to give the team incrementally better chances in the inevitable bullpen games to come. I think the we're back in this thing or troops for Tito's last hurrah takes are overthinking the situation. Also, the Angels, what a mess. Yeah, the Angels and the White Sox right now. I, they're giving the Mets a run for their money as the biggest mess in baseball right now. Uh... Three things, he says. Protection. I guess I'll just have to agree to disagree with you and other listeners about whether or not it exists and has a real impact on the game. 
There are a ton of studies on the topic in the sabermetric era. The consensus seems to be that, yes, some pitchers take note of who's on deck, and yes, there may be a slight uptake in the protectees on base percentage, but these effects, if they show up at all, are slight and... <laughs> Jeff has great vocabulary here. Ephemeral. Furthermore, it's just plain weird that we only speak of it with the middle of the order. Hitters, can number eight not protect number seven, say... Uh, bottom line, the problem isn't who's hitting immediately behind Jose or Jose and Josh. If it's that no other hitter on the roster with significant plate appearances comes close to those guys' production. I, yeah, you're always going to look at this as your best hitter. Like, who's protecting your best hitter? Um, and yeah, I, I think Jose... I, it's just nice to see them pay for walking Jose Ramirez, right? You, you, the reason you buy a ticket is to see Jose Ramirez have a big hit, have a big moment, right? That's why you bought the ticket. And if they're going to intentionally walk him in the moment where you want to see that superstar have that moment, it's nice to have a Josh Naylor or, say, a Cole Calhoun hitting behind him who's going to make that team pay and give you the moment that you want. So maybe it's just selfish, uh, you know, but we want those big moments. We want those big hits. We want those RBIs. And if you're going to take the bat out of Jose Ramirez's hand, I really would like someone behind him who can come up with a hit, can come up with that RBI uh, on somewhat the same uh, level that Jose Ramirez can. So I don't know. We'll continue to disagree about protection in the lineup. Uh, He goes on to say Calhoun haven't listened to uh, he mentions the Selby is Godcast in a while, but I can get on board with ex- I I can get on board with extending him a minor league invite as a courtesy for next season, but nothing more. If he's on the 2014 for any significant time, it means something's gone seriously wrong. Someone hasn't done their job or both. Uh, he's a decent Plan C if injuries strike or young players flame out. One of the lessons from the season and one that seems to manifest itself over and over again is that averages average-ish first-base DH outfield types are plentiful. You don't need to go out and guarantee as much as $33 million to get that level of performance from a veteran in decline. Those guys are out there at the end of a major league bench or biding time at AAA. The trick is to avoid having to get lucky on well-timed hot streak for one of them to drive your offense. Uh... Yeah, I will agree with you because, you know, Mazzardo, the guy we got from Tampa Bay, is sitting right there at AAA. Uh, again, yeah, Cole Calhoun, just because of his impact in the clubhouse, might carve out a bench role. Um, but with Naylor and David Fry and this Mazzardo guy all competing for first base, uh, you, you do have to wonder if Calhoun is just a nice story this season. Just let it be a nice story. In fact, let's not even bring up extending him anymore let's just let it be a nice story this season and then we'll deal with the offseason when the offseason comes he says speaking of 33 million josh bell's comments maybe i'm not reading what you are but all i saw is that he said he talks to his hitting coach there watches video and comes up with a plan based on that and that's more advanced than other teams i didn't see him mention the guardians he's played for the pirates padres and nationals also Look, I don't care who our hitting coach is next year. I wish the team had more offensive success this year. I wish Vileka well if he moves on. I won't shed a tear if he does. But do we honestly think that a biomechanics guy, a guy who worked up the street at Sparta Science, doesn't employ and discuss video and approach with his hitters? That the Guardians are somehow the outliers among the five teams Bell's played for? That the hitting coach... All right, so he keeps going here. 
Uh, oh, actually, yeah, all right, there is something interesting here. That the hitting coach for a team that scored fewer runs than the Guardians is somehow the bell whisperer we lacked. I say again, don't overthink it. This time in search of a scapegoat. To me, this seems like yet another case of a 30-ish guy moving over back to the fastball is a fastball count league and feasting for a period of time on the simplicity like Naquin or Castellanos or Candelario or Eddie Rosario, etc., etc., or even a 40-something like Pujols. If you read or heard Bell explicitly called the Cleveland for something, please enlighten me. Have a good holiday weekend. Jeff in Palo Alto. Man, he could pack a punch with an email, can't he? Um, okay, so, yeah, uh, basically he's dogging on the National League and saying, look, they all they throw is fastballs, and it, it makes the hitters better. So he's saying that hitters are better by moving to the National League. No, Bell did not specifically say anything from the Guardians. The only reason that I latched onto it and other, I think other people latched onto it is because he was saying this off the back of leaving Cleveland and going to Miami. So it's easy to infer that the comments he makes have to do with his recent situations. But you're right. He never says something specifically. That's the only reason that I latched on to those comments. And again, I think other people too. Um, But you're right. He never said anything about Cleveland specifically. And no, I I don't believe that Valeka is not doing his job. And they're not watching video. That they're not going over those things. But... Remember they ran those those ads over and over again with Josh Bell during the season where you know he talks about going up there with a plan, right? You know I go up there with a plan, I clear my mind, I go up there with a plan. Now they've got Will Brennan up there talking about uh, looking at the A on his bat and clearing his mind. It's an okay ad, it's an okay little promo. They just run it way too much on the broadcast, and. It was really hard to like hear Bell say that and then go up and watch him just flail at pitches out of the zone. I mean, take some really bad swings, and you're going, where's the plan, Josh? Where Where's the plan you talk about? So uh, something wasn't clicking here. Something between him and Valeka wasn't clicking and the rest of the hitting staff because he wasn't going up there with a plan. He wasn't having good at-bats, and he is now in Miami. So maybe it is... Maybe it is just easier to hit in the National League. But, uh, I, yeah. So, I, I no, I don't think that Valeka was, you know, not not giving him the resources that he needed to be a hitter here. It just, something was not clicking. All right. Thank you, Jeff uh, in Palo Alto. Thank you for giving us a lot to munch on there. Marlon also has his thoughts about the um, about that waiver wire players and uh, the game. He says, hi, Davey. Kudos to Cal Quantrill for proving me proving me wrong. A couple of days ago, I groaned when I learned he'd be starting tonight. He had a quality start and went toe-to-toe with Tyler Glass now. He struggled a bit early but settled down quite nicely. He didn't miss a ton of bats. No, he never does, does he, Marlon? But he had his trademark bulldog mentality of not being denied. Yeah, I will say that. He went out there. He battled. Did you notice he grew a goatee? He went with the goatee look. I think... I think we have like the villain version, the heel version, to use a wrestling term, of Cal Quantrill out there. If he's going to be, I like this villain persona from him. So if he's going to go out there and just battle his butt off uh, with that, with the power of the goatee, uh, maybe it's a look he's just got to keep uh, for the rest of the season. I'm so proud of rookies, Marlon continues, I'm so proud of rookies Arias and Bo Naylor for driving in what proved to be the game-tying and winning runs. It looks like they're starting to figure things out, and hopefully Tito will get 
out of their way and let them play, particularly Bo. Knowing Tito, he'll probably start Cam Gallagher tomorrow. I'll say again, the DH position is available for Bo Naylor. He can DH to keep his bat in the lineup. Will Tito ever use that option? Probably not. I agree with Marlon here. I haven't listened to yesterday's podcast, he said, but I wanted to mention the recent waiver wire additions. I'm glad to see the vets added to the pitching staff, but I'll admit being very disappointed not seeing them pick up Hunter Renfro. Uh, a bunch of guys on MLB Tonight uh, mentioned that it didn't make any sense to them either. They put up a graphic of Cleveland's 16 home runs from the outfield and how it's among the lowest for a team in MLB history. There are about four or five teams in league history that have as few home runs as Cleveland. I don't get it. I really don't. What's the ham in adding Renfro to add more pop? If it means taking playing time away from Oscar Gonzalez or Brennan, so be it. This lineup needs more firepower. What's more confusing is DFAing both Haas and Peyton. Love is a bad, bad in field. God, Marlon, you nail it again on the nickname. Peyton, love is a bat in field but not releasing Cam Gallagher. Haas is a superior player to Gallagher and is much more versatile as well. There's no way Gallagher should have stayed, but Haas was sent packing. They could have used a phantom 60-day IL stint for Oscar Gonzalez or free up a spot if necessary. I'm also surprised they DFA'd Battenfield instead of Michael Kelly. Um, Yeah, you know what? Uh, I don't want to see him do a phantom IL thing. I don't like that, but uh, I thought Gallagher might Loses spot once uh, David Fry comes back, but they added Fry as one of the September. I think they added Fry and Jose Tena as the September call-ups. Right, they're allowed to add, expand the rosters in September by two spots, so they're able to add Fry back without cutting Gallagher. So there just is something about the way Gallagher calls the game and the way Gallagher handles the pitching staff that has him just locked in as the backup catcher for the rest of the season. Marlon goes on to mention Josh Bell's recent comments, but I think we've already, in Valleca, but I think we've already covered that. So thank you, Marlon, for the email. Thank you, as always, for joining the show. So that is all my thoughts on the day. The last thing to do is pick an MVP on the day. Oh, boy. Uh, man, I, I kind of feel like we got to give it to Cal. I feel like we do. I We didn't expect that from him. I, I kind of want to go with Bo Naylor because he did have the go-ahead RBI double. But I think we got to give it to Cal Quantrill. Nobody, be honest, morning people, be honest, nobody expected that good of a start. Two hits over six innings, nobody expected that kind of a start from Cal Quantrill. So even though he doesn't even get the win, uh, the win actually goes to Eli Morgan, who came into relief in the top of the seventh. Cal kept us in that game. He battled like crazy. He actually, you know, settled down. And as glass now falls apart, Cal only got stronger. And uh, so even though he doesn't get the W, he's getting MVP on the day from me. So good job, Cal Quantrill, and welcome back. All right, that's all my thoughts. Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. Again, the final, it's the Guardians 3, the Tampa Bay Rays 2. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey Barris. You can email the show at clevelandbaseballmornings at gmail.com. Just like Jeff with a J and Marlon did, be a part of the conversations. Challenge me with conversations like Jeff and Palo Alto did. Share your thoughts on the game like Marlon does, and we'll discuss it on the show. So thanks again for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. Baseball Morning.